Uh, let me pray again as we dive in here. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to make space in our hearts uh, to listen to you and to hear your voice and to uh, to hear good news. God, wherever we're coming from, um, whatever has been going on this week or this weekend, whatever drama is going on in our lives, whatever's causing us anxiety right now, um, we lift that up to you. And Lord, rather than trying to forget about it, um, we ask that you would speak into it this morning. God, would you give us grace to hear your voice in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Conrad, would you do me the wonderful favor of shutting that exit door so that only the people in the hall can listen to my daughter and all of her delight? (laughs) She got the Kaiser lungs, that's for sure. Uh, A Florida newspaper... Uh, The Jacksonville Times reported in March about a married couple, Tito and Amanda Watts. Uh, They were arrested for selling golden tickets to heaven. And they claimed that these tickets were made out of solid gold. They sold them for $99.99 apiece. And to each person that presented them at the pearly gates, they said, you were guaranteed one spot in heaven. Uh, Tito Watts made a statement to the police where he said, I don't care what the police say. Uh, The tickets are solid gold and it was Jesus who gave them to me behind the KFC and said to sell them so that I could get me some money to go to outer space. I met an alien named Stevie who said if I got the cash together, he'd take me and my wife on his flying saucer to his planet that's made entirely of drugs. You should arrest Jesus because he's the one that gave me the golden tickets and said to sell them. I'm willing to wear wire and set Jesus up. That was a lot funnier to me, I guess, than it was to you guys (laughs) hearing it. Um, These mugshots are just priceless to me. Um, According to another news source, police said they confiscated over $10,000 in cash, drug paraphernalia, and a baby alligator. Now, um, it it should go to say that uh, the Jacksonville Times later reported a retraction admitting that they had been duped. This was, in fact, a fake story put out for April Fool's Day. Um, And these are from some Huffington Post best mugshots of all times, you know, um, slideshow. Uh, but the Jacksonville Times and several other news sources were completely, I don't, I don't know what gave it away. Maybe it was the website that they got it from was stupid.com or something. But, you know, maybe, maybe it, it raises the question for me, though. Um, what was it? What does it say that this kind of story could fool them? I mean, these are professional journalists, right? What does it say? Maybe it's just Florida, but maybe it's something else. Maybe there are just enough crazy religious people with crazy versions of their gospel 
that this this story was just unbelievably believable enough that it could be true. Uh, Richard, I won't make you look at that any longer. Richard had an anger problem. And um, he had so much trouble with his anger that it, it manifested itself in his relationships with his bosses at work. He thought his superiors were idiots. And uh, he got so mad that he would want to beat him up. But the thing that kept him from beating him up, beating him up, he told his pastor, was that he was convinced that he was going to go to heaven and they would burn in hell. Um, in his words, I flipped them the finger in my mind because they are all going to hell. Um, Richard's gospel didn't have challenge to, to say to his relationships with his bosses. It had affirmation, which goes to show the way that the gospel as we conceive it has very practical ramifications. It's not just some theoretical construct. It has very practical implications for the way that we live. Um, we live out of that gospel. Um, for better or for worse, as Richard's story shows us. Another guy, Dave, had uh, worked part-time at a Starbucks for a couple of years. He started working there as a missionary. And he really wanted to be present with his co-workers and share good news with them. And um, over a couple of years, he had built rapport and relational capital with his co-workers, so much so that one of his co-workers, Rachel came to him and said, hey, I'd really like to talk. And so they pulled away to a quiet part of the Starbucks. And she sat down to describe to him, hey, I um, am having a really hard time. Um, my husband and I were former drug addicts. I've just found out that my husband has relapsed and he's telling me that he's leaving. Me, and I'm devastated. And Dave, in that moment, is wondering to himself, what good news can I share with Rachel uh, from God that will encourage her? And as he's sitting there, he's thinking, uh, you know, the, the gospel that I have doesn't really seem to fit Rachel's situation. Because Dave, like many people, had been schooled in sharing the gospel as the four spiritual laws, right? Have you heard the four spiritual laws? So the first law is that God has a plan for your life. Number two, that we're sinful and that separates us from God. Number three, Jesus has made provision for our sin so that we can have a relationship with God. Number four, if we accept the work of Jesus on our behalf, we can receive God's love, we can be saved from wrath, we can go to heaven. Uh, those laws for Dave didn't really seem to speak to Rachel's story. She wasn't struggling with guilt and shame over her sin. She was devastated by relational brokenness. Dave needed a bigger gospel than the one he had to share with Rachel. And I would, I would submit that, that Rachel needs a bigger gospel. She needs one that has good news for broken relationships and addictions. Richard needs a bigger gospel. Richard needs a gospel that helps him reconcile uh, with others the same way God has reconciled with him. We need a bigger 
gospel, one that's bigger than the popular reductions of either the four spiritual laws or the gospel that says Jesus sets a good example in life and we should follow his way of life. We should follow his example. We need a bigger gospel for us because if the gospel is not big enough for everything, everything in our lives, it makes it very easy to put it in a compartment that we can put it in and take it out of at our convenience. And we need a bigger gospel for our neighborhoods because if the gospel is not big enough for our neighborhoods, um, we'll become irrelevant. We, people won't want to listen to good news because it won't sound like good news to them. It won't speak good news from God into their lives. We need a bigger gospel, uh, but can we have one? Can we have a bigger gospel than the one uh, or the versions that have particularly you know, been around us or, or that may have reduced it some? You know, definitely be suspicious of anyone claiming to have the golden ticket, pun intended. Thank you, Tito Watts. Um, but I think if we, can, if we can have a bigger gospel, the place to go is the source. Um, the scriptures serve as our witness to the gospel, to the revelation of God. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 is probably the most often referred to <clears throat> text to define the gospel. Um, so if you want to turn to page 787... We'll read uh, verses one through one through five. We're going to stop a little abruptly in the middle of here. Would somebody read First Corinthians fifteen one through five? Follow the way of love. Eagerly desire spiritual gifts. That's a good chapter too. Long chapter. Sorry. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as a person of importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. That's good. And then he appeared to other folks, and to Paul who's writing this. That's the rest of that. So, Paul uses this word gospel. and It's important for us to connect that word gospel. Gospel is literally good news. That's, that's what gospel means. Um, emperors in the day would use this as a way of proclaiming... Um, their, their victory or, or conquering new territories or their status as gods, right? Um, exciting announcements or the latest triumphs. The gospel is good news. And news is always a story. It's not a set of propositions or ideas or laws. Um, good news is always about something that has happened. Uh, N.T. Wright says that news is about something that happened in the past And because it happened, something else will happen in the future. And in the in-between, what what has happened and what will happen in the in-between, it affects the way that we live in the now, in the present. It changes the way that we wait for what is to become because of 
the new world that was created by this thing that happened in the past. When Julie walked out of the bathroom of our of our two bedroom apartment in East Memphis about 10 years ago with a pregnancy test that was positive for our first child. That was some big news. Yeah. Um, And that that news, that happening, that thing that happened um, affected the future. Something in the future was going to change because of that, right? We were going to have a child. We were going to introduce a baby into the world. We were going to enlarge our family, right? And, and the in-between, between the time when Ryan enters the world, um, who we don't know what his name is at that point. I was hoping it was Clark, but I didn't win. But that in-between time um, is changed because of this thing that happened in the past that's going to influence something that happens in the future. Uh, we were going to have to buy diapers and have baby showers and, and prepare a nursery and die from excitement and all those things that you do when you're in that kind of waiting period. That is the nature of news. News is about something that happened and it has an effect on something that will happen because of it and it changes things in the in-between. That's exactly what the good news of God is about too, Right? Paul here says that the good news is the story of how Jesus is the Messiah who died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. Now, that's going to have an effect on something that happens in the future. And and then it's going to have an effect on how we live in the present as we wait for that thing to come in the future. Now, at first glance, the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus the Christ or the Messiah seems like a pretty narrow slice of the gospel. That seems pretty, um, pretty uh, drilled down and whittled down, right? Um, so how, how is that the bigger gospel? How, how do we get a bigger gospel out of what Paul is saying here? I think it boils down to a very simple phrase that he uses twice that clues us into something much larger. And that's this phrase, according to the scriptures. He uses it twice. According to the scriptures, Jesus was he he died. According to the scriptures, three days he rose again. According to the scriptures, clues us in to the backstory. Now, isn't it true that the backstory is everything in good news? The backstory is what makes news good or bad or frustrating or Whatever. So, so the backstory of Julie and I having a child, everything changes, or the story is different if Julie and I are teenagers, if that's the backstory. Or if the backstory is Julie's married and I'm not her husband. Or if the backstory is we've been trying for a really, really long time to have a baby. Or we've waited for a long time as a couple, and now we're expanding our family. Do you see how the backstory makes sense of the news that happens, right? We can't understand the news without the backstory of the news. Simple enough? Yeah? Okay. So what is the backstory? For Paul, the backstory is according to the scriptures, which, which means everything. And this is where lots of versions of the gospel go wrong because they they extract uh, this stuff about Jesus and death and resurrection and forgiveness and they they disconnect them from this story. So if I was to whittle it down, 
um, the backstory for Paul's good news is the story of Israel that's found in the Hebrew Bible. Those are the scriptures, according to the scriptures. It's our Old Testament. This is where many gospel versions go distorted because they ignore or they change this backstory. So Jesus is not some random savior figure. He is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. Israel was the people of God. They were brought into being through the promise that God made to Abram to bless the whole world through his offspring. And that God would bless this whole world and reclaim what had become sin-plagued and death-cursed. And Israel was supposed to be a light to the whole world, but they failed at their task. And so they began to hope for someone to come and help them to fulfill this calling to bless the whole world. That God might anoint someone. Messiah means anointed one. That God might anoint a Messiah to lead them and become king and restore and bless the whole world. And that's exactly what happens in the, persons of Jesus, in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the person through whom God becomes king of his creation and begins to drive out the reign of sin and death. Which is why the gospel that Jesus preached is the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's the gospel of God becoming king over his created world. So the backstory is not totally about individuals getting their sins forgiven so that they can go to heaven. It's about the renewal of creation and the reconciliation of all relationships. It's not totally about an empty way of life being replaced with a fulfilling way of life. It's about Jesus becoming the Lord and King reigning over the whole earth. Forgiveness and a better way of life and those laws are part of this much bigger picture of God's restorative work of this world. But if they're reduced to those things, it misses the point. It's not the big picture of the gospel that speaks into everything and everywhere. The gospel is much more expansive than just those finer points. So if I was to, uh, to sum up the gospel, I would say that the gospel is the good news that in Jesus God has fulfilled his promises to Israel and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, Jesus, replace Jesus, um, through the re- death and resurrection of Jesus, He now reigns as king over the earth, making all things new that have been broken by the reign of sin and death. So that's our relationship with God. The gospel, the the manifestation of the gospel is that it repairs our relationship with God. That's the theological outpouring of the gospel. It repairs our relationship with ourself. With our own well-being, it replaces anxiety with peace and joy. That's the psychological outgoing of the gospel that the death and resurrection of Jesus makes possible. It also repairs our relationships with each other. That's the sociological aspect of the gospel. And it repairs our relationship with the created order, with the earth, the ecological outcome of the gospel. So how does this telling of the gospel um, compare to tellings that you've heard or lived with or been exposed to. Say it again. How does this telling of the gospel compare to other tellings of the gospel that you have heard? It's wider and deeper. 
In what way? Well, um, conservatives don't give a ding dong about about uh, the environment. I mean, that's the liberals' agenda, and they and, and it does say to restore. I mean, it's in the scripture, in key places, and uh, conservatives don't have any consciousness or care for the for, for that. Yeah, you know these these four categories come from the creation story. Um, at least for me, um, and in the creation story, we see the way that relationships in each of those categories was broken, right? So um, their spiritual relationship with God is broken. They, they feel shame. That's the psychological brokenness. Um, they blame, Adam and Eve blame each other, and there's brokenness in their relationship with each other. And then the earth, there's this curse thing that happens to the earth, to the world. So, you know, the thought there is... If God is working to restore everything that's been broken by sin and death, then the ecological, the earth, that has to be a part of it, right? Because that was subjected to what Paul would say, the bondage of decay. uh, God wants to redeem that too, right? And that's something that's often overlooked or labeled as, you know, tree-hugging, hippie kind of stuff. But that's part of the gospel. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah, um, a lot of the ways that I've heard it presented before makes the gospel, or puts me at the center of the story, Mm. right? I was created by a loving God, (coughs) I sinned against God, Um, Jesus had to die because of my sins, and every time I sin, it bad, you know, sticks Jesus again, Yeah. and, but thankfully now that, now I can get to be with God someday in the future, and it, or, but everything about that, it's, it makes it all about me and my personal journey. Mm-hmm. And when you present it like this, it's it puts God at the center. God yeah. created everything, and He is now ruling everything. Yeah. Um, and He's fixing everything and everybody. And it's, it's you know, I'm I'm part of that. I'm yeah. in there, but it's it's not. I'm not at the center of it all. That's great, Ted. Now, you could hear the me centered in the four spiritual laws about God having a plan for me and God rescuing me. You know, the, as you said, the me is a part of this, but it's this is what God is doing. It affects me, and I also get to be a part of it um, for other people. Yeah, and for the whole world. That's great. Maybe one more thought that comes up to you as you think about other how this compares to other tellings of the gospel that you've heard or interacted with. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, for about a year, I went to uh, Celebrate Recovery, which is a Christian version of 12 Steps. And in there, I got did a wonderful work in me, but I heard many, 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 many times, people have been in churches, that uh, they were, they had no freedom opportunity to share their own soul hurt in a churchy context. They had to go there to see the scriptures, to get the prayer and the support to get the redemption, the, the private psychological redemption. Mm-hmm. They had to go there. Mm-hmm. So the gospel of the many, many churches was all about this spiritual, mm-hmm. you know, me being redeemed and me going to heaven, not me being healed all on this earth to deal with my anger and my resentments and right. my fears and my frustrations, my addictions, my obsessions. All that was was over there for the Christian counselors to <coughs> wave their magic wand and make all that go away. And I went to a bunch of them, and they don't have any magic wands. That's good, John. That's exactly right. 
kind of outsource the psychological part to uh, recovery ministry. Yeah. Um, one more thought? Anybody? Just thinking in the, in the more narrow telling of the gospel, you know, we tend to land on that first relationship with God, the theological. And as we talk to people, we have to, in that telling, we have to convince them how bad they are first before. They don't, I don't always sense that they have a broken relationship with God. Mm-hmm. They sense that the earth's not right and mm-hmm. people don't see each other right. There's lots of other bad stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we gospel doesn't fix that, you know, in that telling. It's right. all about, as Ted was saying, being God. And yet, we have to convince them, I think, and I know that doesn't always work very well, but we have to tell them how bad they are before. But really, God loves you, but you're really awful. Let's start with how sinful you yeah. are. Right? <laughs> I know you feel really great about life right now, but let's right. back up a minute. You're really jacked up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly, there has to be some other on-ramp into good news. Right. Then that, maybe that, I mean, but that, that's not to say that that's not an on-ramp. It just can't be the only on ramp. you got to get the bad news before you can get the good news. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Let's sit down, please. Let me touch. Yeah. That's the backstory. <laughs> That's right. That's the backstory. Uh, and certainly it is a part of the backstory. It's just not all of it. Um, in their book, Prodigal Christianity, two guys, David Pitch and Jeff Holsclaw, um, talk about of a discernment process that their, their church went through, um, their church is called Life on the Vine Christian Community. seems like more and more of these are cropping up. Apparently, we're storyline Christian community is a part of the Christian community denomination. I'm just kidding. It's not a denomination. Um, it's just the best possible name for a church. You know, um, so they go through this discernment process because they are sensing they need a bigger gospel. Uh, they need a gospel that will address the folks in their neighborhood. And so they, they get their Bibles out, and for, for a couple of months, they pour over Scripture, and they, they think about what's going on in their neighborhood, what are people going through, what are the problems, what are the hungers, what are the aches, and they identified some um, markers, what they call on-ramps to the kingdom, which are expressions of the good news of the kingdom of God for their particular northern suburb of Chicago. And I think given our shared context in the states, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of what they develop that really speaks to us in our context. And so I just wanted to share these four with you. They're not the only four, but they're good. And I think they they stick somewhat with where we're at and with the neighborhoods that we're living in. So I share these on-ramps as a way of encouraging you. And I want you to be thinking about which one of these sticks for you in particular this morning. Um... Which one of these is speaking good news into your life this morning? Uh, So these four on-ramps. The first on-ramp is that God is reconciling us in all our relationships. God is doing that. God's in the process of reconciling us. We live in a lot of isolation There's a lot of disconnection. There's a lot of brokenness and fragmentation in our relationships. But in the midst of that, in the midst of prejudice and abuse, God is presently at work to set our relationships right with each other. We enter the kingdom when we work for reconciliation in our relationships, be it in our marriage, be it with with different relationships. Uh, with different ethnic backgrounds and working for racial reconciliation. God is at work. 
to restore and reconcile all of our relationships. Number two, God is at work. God is at work. It may not seem like it sometimes when we face failure or when we struggle, um, when we are running crazy busy fast in our work and it's frenetic if, if we lose our job or if there's a threat that we'll lose our job or if we're struggling to get a job. Or whatever way that we, we might wonder, does God remember us? Does God have his eye on us? The good news is that God is at work. God is at work in all of our dealings to bring peace and wholeness. We enter the kingdom through faith, believing that he's at work, and obedience, responding to what we sense him do. Number three, God has put the power of sin to death and is calling us into life. We struggle with hang-ups that we can't shake. We struggle with addiction. We struggle with patterns of thought or life that we would rather do without. And we are invited to put our sin on the cross and enter into the freedom of the kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sin doesn't have to have a hold on us anymore. Uh, We can be free. God has put sin to death and is calling us into life. And then the final unwrap is that God is calling us into mission. We are invited not just uh, to receive the gospel for us, but to be a part of this bigger, grander, restorative mission of God in the world. To, to renew, to reclaim, to heal everything that's been broken by sin and death. Terry Willis, who's not here this morning, but last week in communion, she said something that really stuck with me. She said, you know, the work that we do here in this world, on this earth, is not for nothing. Um, it has eternal significance. It's going to be carried forward into the new creation. You know, I heard her saying, you know, God's not going to scrap the world someday and start over. God is going to redeem it. And all of the work that we've done in God's mission is going to be carried forward into new creation. It has eternal significance. And so um, God called us into mission this weekend to raise money to help our friends in poverty. God called us into mission this morning at the end of our gathering when we'll give generously to support our friends um, in need. God calls us into mission in that way today as a church. And, and we enter the kingdom as we give generously, as we, as we serve and love and share with our friends in need, and as we witness to our searching friends who are looking for God. And they're looking for good news. God is calling us into mission. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We rehearse the gospel of Jesus at the communion table every week. Uh, The Lord Jesus, when we commune together, 
He meets us here as the host of our meal. And the kingdom flows out from the table, from the tables for us. The kingdom flows out from the tables to us and through us to each other as we celebrate what the death and resurrection of Jesus had made, have made possible for our relationship with God, for our relationship with each other, for our relationship with ourselves, and for our relationship with the earth. Um, so we're going to celebrate in this communion time um, and segue into celebrating communion. Uh, we're going to celebrate the bigness of the gospel. Uh, I'll say a prayer, and then afterwards, um, Tommy and Melinda, would you guys serve communion? So we'll we'll go back here, and Tommy and Melinda, you can receive communion from them, and then we'll come back to the tables. And um, after you receive communion and come back, we'll discuss the question together: Which of these on ramps is speaking to you today, and why? And then uh, we'll move on from there. So let me pray. God, gracious God, uh, we thank you for the risk of love that you take to create this world, to create humanity, to make space for freedom, um, to to risk um, brokenness and chaos and evil for the sake of um, vibrant, life-giving, free relationship. And God, we thank you, too, that that when it did break, when it does break, when we break, that you do not want to throw us in the trash. You don't want to throw this world in the trash, but rather your heart is to renew and restore and make all things new. And we praise you, God, and we remember and we celebrate that in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is, in fact, what you are doing right now. God, for the times when we find that hard to believe and just outlandish, God, we, we cling to trust and hope and faith to believe that, that, that you are reconciling us to you, to each other, and to this earth. God, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.